the main thing that I keep in mind when I'm working or you know when I'm getting out of bed in the morning is doing something for the greater good of the world. Trying to find the reason to why you do most things will keep you um, engaged and keep you passionate. Hello world and welcome to Her Royal Science. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode. Today we'll be chatting with Dr. Aya Osman, a postdoctoral researcher at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. She previously completed her bachelor's in biomedical science at Royal Holloway University, followed by her MSc in toxicology at the University of Surrey, and her PhD in neuropharmacology also at the University of Surrey. I am so excited to chat with Dr. Osman today about her research on the role of the gut microbiome in neuropsychiatric disorders, and her work as a professional fashion model and psychomer on social media. But let's start from the very beginning. Dr. Osman, what's your story? Hello there, and thank you so much, Dr. Bashir, for having me on this wonderful platform. My story uh, starts back in Saudi Arabia, actually, where I was born. Um, but my parents are actually of Sudanese origin. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never actually spent any time there. They moved out of Sudan very early in the 1980s, uh, moved over to Saudi Arabia, which is actually a very natural progression for a lot of Sudanese people. Mm-hmm. And so I was born in Saudi Arabia in 1988 in Jeddah and spent the first seven years of my life there. Uh, we then decided to move from Saudi Arabia to the UK, uh, mainly because um, some of my older brothers were reaching university age. And I don't think a lot of people know this, but in the Middle East, um, in particular in Saudi Arabia, you can't actually attend university there unless you're of Saudi blood. And mm-hmm. so because we were immigrants, my dad knew that he would have to send each of us to university at different parts of the world. And he didn't really want to break up the family that way. So for educational purposes, we decided that the UK was probably uh, the best natural uh, next step for us. So um attended primary school there high school. Um, and honestly, it was really during high school that my interest in science really started to show. It was the only subject I was getting good grades in um, consistently. Um, and I was enjoying it. I found myself really enjoying learning about the molecular processes that, you know, underlie um, disease and health. And so the UK system is obviously quite different to the US mm-hmm. system. So um, at the end of high school, so at the end, age of 16, you decide on four topics that you want to study. This is for A-levels. Um, and so I decided to study biology, chemistry, and English, and also geography. Um, and I dropped geography after a year. So I ended up with three subjects, biology, chemistry, English. When it came to applying for undergraduate degrees, um, being of African origin slash Middle Eastern, you have only two options, <laughs> engineering. <laughs> as you probably well know, or uh, medicine. Um, And so I wanted to go for medicine, but unfortunately my grades were not strong enough at that point. Um, And looking back on it now, I realized I, I was always very studious, but because the environment wasn't the best at the time, there was a lot of struggles. You know, my dad didn't really do too well in the UK and he ended up moving back. And so our family ended up getting broken up either way, which is what we're trying to avoid. So Long story short, I didn't have the grades to get into medicine um, and decided to do a biomedical degree, um, which would cover many of the basics uh, of biology and physiology and biochemistry. Mm. And so I did that role Holloway, as you mentioned, for three years. 
graduated at the end of the three years. Um, and I did actually, so we do something called the MCAT in the UK. I sat at the MCAT and I didn't think I would get a good score in the MCAT. And the MCAT kind of guarantees you um, interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, and so thinking I didn't do too well, I didn't bother apply for interviews. And then I got my MCAT results back and I did actually get a score that would have guaranteed me some interviews. So that was a shame. But I kind of set my uh, medical degree dreams aside then um, and decided, you know what, let me do a master's. Let me try and specialize a bit more in an aspect of biology uh, before deciding what I wanted to do long term. And so I embarked on a on a master's at um, Surrey University in the topic of toxicology. And really, I would honestly say the master's was probably one of the funnest periods of my life because it was, you know, it was one year. And you got to focus on, you know, quite a small niche of topics for that one year, as opposed to your undergraduate, which, you know, as you know, is a lot of topics that you might not find interesting. One of the modules of my master's was neuropharmacology. And uh, in particular, the lecture that really stuck out to me was drugs of abuse, because obviously mm-hmm. they're, they're considered toxins. Mm-hmm. And so looking at cocaine, for example, as a toxin that enters your body and dysregulates the reward system in your brain which then leads to the addiction cycle developing was so fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Um, we also covered other, you know, psychiatric conditions from schizophrenia and autism. But I graduated from my master's and I realized that was really where my passion and my interests were, were, were sparked. Um, I left my master's and I ended up working for um, a governmental body called Public Health England for two years. And I just couldn't get the research out of my head. <laughs> like, <laughs> You know, it was just, it it really left a mark on me. I was like, that was fascinating. I, you know, I woke up every day with a sense of purpose and excitement and I wanted to feel that again. So I left uh, my governmental job, very well-paid job, you know, governmental email address, pension, the whole works. Um, And yeah, I emailed my um, master's supervisor and I just expressed my interest. I kept emailing him saying, you know, let me know if there's a PhD opportunity um, that comes across your desk that you think I might be eligible for. And at the end, it boiled down to uh, me and another candidate. And I think the people in the lab, because they'd known me through during my master's, put in a good word for me. So I ended up being being selected over over the other guy. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was one of the best days of my life when I got the acceptance emails. Like, yes, first thing I did was email my job like, hey, I love you all, but I have to leave. <laughs> um, and yeah, my PhD was back at Surrey University. And yeah, I started that in 2013, I want to say. Yeah, so uh, 2018 is when I uh, graduated and got my degree. And so, yeah, my supervisor had trained in the US. He trained at Rockefeller and uh, Mary Jane Creek. I don't know if you're familiar with her. So she's uh, she's the woman who discovered methadone. Methadone yes. is the supplement or the, the replacement therapy for opioid addiction. So he trained in the US and he came back from the US to the UK and he didn't actually have the best experience. He he thought it was great for his career, but um he told me, you know, it's it's really competitive. Yeah. And he had his, you know, his wife and stuff were back in the UK, so he had reason to move back. Um whereas I was single, you know, I didn't read really, other than my family and my siblings, I didn't really have a partner or anything anchoring me to the UK. But yeah, so I, I he recommended a lab for me here at um, Icon School of Medicine. I interviewed with the lab over Skype, and I was like, "Wait, I hadn't, I'd never been to the US at this point." So um, I asked to come here for a week for the interview. I had to give a job talk, 
Um, after my job talk, a few labs were interested, and one of them happened to be a lab that studied the gut microbiome in addiction and other psychiatric conditions. And because my PhD touched on the gut microbiome and the link to the brain, it seemed like a more natural fit than the lab that had flown me over. Um, they made the offer. I had to go back to the UK for, I think it was like three or four months. I just felt like I was in limbo that whole time, just <laughs> yeah. itching to get back to New York. <laughs> I um, can imagine. Yeah, I submitted my thesis, defended it, packed my suitcase, two suitcases, may I add. <laughs> and uh, yeah, moved moved here to start my postdoc. Uh, and that's where I am currently. That's lovely. There's so many topics that I would love to jump off of. I do want to talk about your research in just a second. But before that, I want to touch upon some of the research culture differences between the UK and the US. Have you noticed any other any other differences, discrepancies that come to mind when you compare and contrast your experience in the UK versus the last couple of years of being in the United States? Yeah, I think I would say the biggest contrast really and the reason why my PI pushed me to move here is there's a lot more money available for research mm. in the US. Yeah. That's one of the main things here is the finance in the US allows you to be, to be able to publish quicker, essentially, because mm-hmm. you have access to fancier techniques that yeah. give you more meaningful data and insight. Um, so that's number one. That's the biggest thing I would say. And for anyone like me, I, I didn't get many publications during my PhD. So I wanted publications. I needed them. So that was the reason um, I shifted over here. And I think the, the culture in Europe versus the US is different in that. And, you know, I don't want to generalize and, you know, there's probably people who study this for a living, so I don't want to say anything incorrect, but I feel like the in Europe there is a lot less competition and a lot more of a collaborative atmosphere. Mm. Um, whereas in the US, I think because of the access to the techniques and what you could potentially find, yeah. there's a lot more success here. And so that success kind of drives people to be a lot more competitive and mm. more cutthroat, in my opinion, than what I experienced back in Europe. Do you think then the advantageous aspect of the US will then help you if you in turn want to return to the UK? I don't even know if that's your plan. Are you planning on, on going back? You know, it's hard. Yeah, it's really hard. When I first moved here, I was like, oh my God, I love the US. I want to stay here. But, you know, the pandemic, especially the pandemic hitting, I think I know a lot of Europeans who it was a very eye-opening experience for them. And they're like, you know what? I need to be closer to family. So the pandemic has changed a lot for me because before I was like, oh, it's just across the pond. I can fly back anytime. It's only six hours. And then you realize things happen in life that mean that you, you can't fly back as easily. So I'm still assessing that question at this stage. Um, the other thing that we can also get into in a little bit is obviously I'm I'm a woman of color, I'm a black woman, and I find that the US has given me more opportunity to be able to talk about the challenges I face as a mm. black woman opposed, as opposed to the UK where you couldn't even say the word black, you know? So in that sense, as hard as it is to be here and away from family, I do feel like I have more of a chance to make a ripple here or make an an impactful contribution to society and to life than I ever would in the UK. But again, having said that, the pandemic has shifted so much that even now when I was back in the UK, I saw Surrey University released a scholarship program for black students. And they actually said for black students, that was mind blowing to me because that doesn't happen in the UK. You don't address things about race that directly. So, um, Things are slowly starting to change in the UK too, but for now I still feel like my 
calling or my purpose is currently in the US. Mm. I do notice that as well. I think uh, I'm not the first person to say this, but in the US, race relations and racism tends to be more overt, whereas mm-hmm. in the UK, it tends to be more covert. Yes. So it's not that it's not there. It's just that people don't use the same language and it makes it really hard to describe what it is. Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk a little bit more about venturing into spaces that might be different and foreign. You spoke about being a black woman. And in a recent interview with Stories of Win, Women in Neuroscience, you talked about feeling like an outsider in some spaces, and whether that be in Saudi Arabia or in England. And I think a lot of trainees can speak to that. And I'd love for us to talk a little bit more about that. Do you think being an international trainee at this point in time has compounded any feelings of imposter syndrome? Or have you kind of been like, no, I'm going to take this. I, I, I deserve to be here. What has been your experience? Uh, by this stage, I would have to say it's the latter. But definitely, you know, being a, a from a minority background, I hate using these uh, terminologies because no one wants to classify themselves as a minority. They don't want to be... Nor is it accurate. Nor is it accurate. Yeah, it just it's not. Depending on which part of the world you're from, I go to Sudan, I'm not a minority. But unfortunately, you know, colonialism and a bunch of other political uh, forces at play meant that I had to leave my home country and venture into a place where I am a minority. So naturally, yes, you you do end up feeling out of place because you're usually surrounded by um, people of other races or like, you know, you're the only black person in the room. Um, And that that was in both the science and in the modeling. Um, You know, anyone Mm -hmm. who's had experience in the fashion industry, especially black models, you'll turn up to a photo shoot and the makeup artist doesn't have your color foundation or you end up looking gray and pasty unless you go into the bathroom and quickly try and fix yourself or they don't know how to deal with your hair. So I found that was a theme that, you know, was true across multiple fields, but also across multiple countries. And, you know, much like you, up until I've spoken to you, I'd really never met anyone who's moved around as much as me. But, um, you know, I was a minority in Saudi Arabia. They were majority Arab and, you know, Arabs are lighter and fair more fair fair skin so um and they look down on unfortunately on on africans and people with darker skin um so there i felt like a minority and felt out of place then you move to the uk it's a a caucasian country and again you're a black woman a black family so there i felt out of place and then i moved to the us but actually the us is probably the one place that has had or has the highest population of um, black people mm-hmm. uh, in terms of like as a percentage of the whole population. So th- I've actually felt less like an alien or an outsider here yeah. compared to what I felt in the UK. Again, here I'm British, so people hear my accent and they're like, oh, you're not from here. <laughs> uh, but still, there's a solidarity and a, a sisterhood and a brotherhood that comes with being black that yes. you know, it doesn't matter where you're from, you're a black person our struggles have been the same worldwide so yeah it's strangely enough the US is probably the first place that I have felt less alien or or, or less out of place. Okay let's switch gears back to your research let's talk about what you do what you study how you study it and what you love about it. Yeah so this is uh, one of my favorite topics to talk about (laughs) Um, so yeah I mean let's let's I guess start with my PhD that Um, I guess I would classify myself as a behavioral neuroscientist. Mm -hmm. The more you get into any field, the more you realize that how intricate and complex it is. So there's people who have studied the brain and the circuits and the molecular biology of the brain 
for the majority of their lives. And then I, I come in and I've really studied the peripheral input to the brain. So the gut microbiome and metabolites circulating in the body and how they influence brain function. Mm-hmm. Um, so during my PhD, um, actually, you know, my one of my supervisors, his students realized that um, when you don't wean rats, so rats conventionally in research are weaned from their mothers at the age of postnatal day 21. So mm-hmm. 21 days after they're born, the mother is removed from the cage and the animal is effectively weaned. Yeah. One student kept forgetting to wean their pups. And um, <laughs> we, we uh, the lab that I came from did a technique called autoradiography where you essentially um, use radioactive uh, compounds to to stain slices of the brain and then um once you stain them you can quantify they give off obviously a radioactivity mm-hmm. and you can quantify that radioactivity to see the density of the receptors you're interested in mm-hmm. so they kept doing autoradiography for opioid receptors and um there was a, a group of opioid receptors that just wasn't showing up mm-hmm. and they're like this is confusing why is this happening um, and then they realized that these pups or that the rats they were doing this autoradiography on were not weaned from their mother on the day that they were supposed to be weaned. And so that raised the question of what is it about being around your mother <laughs> for longer than you should that results in these receptors not developing the way they should. Yeah. And so they it, they originally thought it was um, something to do with, uh, you know, the milk exposure from the mother so that they, they were drinking milk for longer than they should have. Mm-hmm. And so they did a set of experiments and basically honed down on the fact that it was the fact that these rats had five days um, extra exposure to maternal milk that resulted in the disruption to the development of these opioid receptors. And we know the opioid system plays a huge role in mood regulation. So they they did a bunch of behavioral testing and realized these animals were displaying depressive-like behavior. Oh, wow. Um, so then my project started with now trying to figure out what it was in milk that is dysregulating the normal development of these opioid receptors. And we know milk, when, when you drink milk, there's uh, several proteins in there. One of those proteins is casein, mm-hmm. which a lot of athletes use now in their like milkshakes, uh, you know, to, for muscle growth. Mm-hmm. But casein actually breaks down to release um, uh, neuroactive peptides called beta-casomorphins. Um, so they're neuroactive because once they're broken down, they're digested in your stomach, broken down, they can actually enter the brain and act on opi- opioid receptors in the brain. So, um, yeah, my project was focused on pinning down whether it was a casein-driven effect, um, and we pinned down that it was casein causing this dysregulation to the opioid receptors. I also looked at oxytocin receptors. So oxytocin is another system, uh, receptor system in the brain. Mm. Uh, but yeah, so that was one aspect of the project. But the other aspect, we were looking at the gut microbiome and how this five days of extra milk affects the composition of bacteria in the gut. And really the interest in the gut is the gut microbiome is developing or stabilizing around the same time that the brain is going through some of its most um, sensitive periods. So that's in the first two years in humans. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was my PhD. And then, like I said, I interviewed in a few labs at Mount Sinai and then the, the lab that was doing gut microbiome, I was like, oh, okay, I have, this is another thing that people should really keep in mind when doing science. Once you find your niche, 
especially someone like me who has so many different interests, <laughs> you should try and stick to your niche because that's how you develop uh, a set of techniques that people then come to you for like, oh, she does gut microbiome analysis. I need gut microbiome analysis for my, for my project. So they'll come to you for that. Um, and that's how you end up on more papers. Um, but yeah, so the, the lab I'm in now, uh, Dr. Drew Karali, um, is part of the SIVA Autism Center. And so he has several projects, one looking at gut microbiome and addiction. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, if you think about what I was saying before, that things that happen early in your life, like dietary exposure, can dysregulate systems in your brain that you need for mood regulation. Mm -hmm. And so if you're, you know, if you're depressed or if you have depression, that's usually one of the underlying factors that results in people um, abusing drugs in the first place. Yeah. Um, and so I really wanted to build on this skill set of looking at early life environmental exposures, mm -hmm. um, as well as genetic exposures. So now with this Autism Siva Center, I'm working with a mouse model of autism, a Shank 3 knockout mouse model. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm moving now towards both genetic and environmental factors, how they interact to result in dysregulations to uh, receptors and systems in the brain that are important for mood mm. um, and then how that can predispose you to uh, abusing drugs. Fascinating. That's so extraordinary. Uh, you did talk a little bit about the pandemic putting a hamper in your plans on the personal side, but how about professionally? How has the pandemic affected this amazing work that you're just telling me about right now? <laughs> oh, God, it was so horrible. Oh, wow. Yeah. So like I said, you know, the pressure in the US is nonstop, as I'm sure, you know, you yeah. Canada might be slightly different, but um, there's constant pressure, especially when you're working for a medical center. Yeah. It doesn't stop. So when the pandemic hit and we were told to stay home, mm. first thing we had to do, we have mouse lines that are breathing like crazy. So yeah. we had to like, uh, you know, sack a number of uh, breeders so that we didn't have as many mice being generated. Yeah. We had to downscale and I, I had to be running behavior the whole time I put animals on treatment for two months so I have really big windows where I, I'm writing or doing molecular work um, so it was already a project that was quite slow and the fact that the pandemic came and then I had to cut down on my breathers um, and then later on when we were allowed back in the lab to ramp them back up it took a huge chunk of time from my research yeah. and unfortunately I knew that instinctively from when we were told to stay home. I was like, okay, I'm not going to be able to run experiments. Mm. And I didn't have a ton of data sitting there to analyze because I was already, I was only a year into my, um, into my work. So it was the most anxiety inducing period of my life. And then knowing that your clock on funding. So I had funding uh, through the Siva Autism Center mm -hmm. for three years, knowing that clock didn't stop. So it's not like I knew I had a salary for five or six years. I knew I had a, a specific time window by which, after which I didn't have funding. I wouldn't have a salary or an income. Mm -hmm. um, and for me to extend that funding or apply for another pot of money, I needed a paper. Mm -hmm. So it was like a catch-22. I couldn't do any work. Um, my, my clock was still ticking. I was still expected to present at lab meetings every week. So it was, and you're like, what do I present? I can't generate data. So mm -hmm. yeah, it wasn't, it was a fun and that's really why I channeled so much of my effort into thinking, okay, there's a global pandemic, you're a scientist, there's something you can do to help right now. And there's not only help, but you can also help yourself and use it as a way to um, push your career along. Yeah. 
Um, and so that's why, you know, we spoke about this earlier. That's where my psychom efforts really kicked in. Um, I had family asking about the virus, uh, the immunity behind it, how it's evolving, what it does to us, uh, our bodies, you know, the brain fog associated with it, the vaccines when they came out. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do this on a platform where more people can get access to these answers that I'm giving out. And so it turned into a side job. Um, I got some really great things out of it. I recently got a publication in Frontiers and Communication out of it. So yeah. I pivoted essentially during the pandemic. I was like, all right, pivot. What can I do to further my career? And um, that's how I dealt with the anxiety and the stress of the pandemic. Forward thinking. Okay. So to end of our conversation, I'd love to hear any words of wisdom that you'd like to share with our listeners. Is there something that you keep in mind, keeps you going so that you stay centered, stay grounded, but also pursue your dreams and your goals, however they may be for that day? Yeah, so I think the first, the main thing that I keep in mind when I'm working or you know, when I'm getting out of bed in the morning is doing something for the greater good of the world um so you know finding finding that purpose is probably one of the hardest things and we spend our whole life trying to find our purpose yeah. but i wake up and remind myself each day what is what is it that why why are you doing this you know why are you doing these experiments why are you stressing about writing these papers or getting these grants ultimately it's to find a solution to autism or find a solution uh to addiction um, and that's a greater good. That's something that's going to come out and help the world and help humanity to live a better life. So trying to find the reason to why you do most things will keep you um, engaged and keep you passionate. Um, the other advice that I have is generally so, you know, for scientists, young um, aspiring scientists, find a mentor. <laughs> I say this over and over again because it's something I didn't do um, quick enough or realize the importance of finding a mentor. It doesn't necessarily have to be your PhD advisor or your postdoc advisor, although they're very influential in your life, so choose them well. It could just be someone that you look up to um, in a different field and you're like, oh, she's been through similar uh, steps or experiences as me. I'm going to reach out to her. And that will really help you because what's the point of um, reinventing the circle if someone else has already done it? Mm -hmm. So if you can keep in touch with those people, they can give you advice, advise you about grants or places to apply. So find your purpose of why you're doing what you're doing day by day. Yeah. Find a good mentor or a bunch of mentors. And yeah, the third thing I would say is have a hobby. Um, it's something <laughs> yeah. I know like being African or Middle Eastern, yeah. they don't really inspire that in you from early on like you know how play a sport uh play the flute yeah. play the saxophone but having a hobby allows you to have something that you switch off from your day-to-day -day work to do that you enjoy um and, and make sure it's something that you find rewarding because yeah those dopamine hits that you get when you're doing those things is really really quite important and it avoids you trying to get those rewards in um, from things that are more harmful say drugs or addiction to your phone or uh, whatnot so yeah those are my three parting words of advice that's beautiful thank you thank you thank you so much dr osman it's been such a pleasure and hopefully people will reach out to you in the future if they do see some parallels in their own lives with some of the things that you shared today i can't thank you enough Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Bashir. And again, thank you for your platform and your voice. Oh, thank you. <laughs>